Welcome to Pell in the Rock, quarantine edition number, I've lost count. I'm Joe Wolfon. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. What is going on? The listeners get uh, a nice treat this week because they get two of your greetings for the price of one if they stick around, <laughs> if they stick around long enough. Uh, yeah, later on in this episode, we are going to be joined by uh, the hosts of Expand the Zone, which is the Scores Major League Baseball podcast. We're going to talk about Michael Jordan's Major League Baseball or Michael Jordan's attempts to play Major <laughs> League Baseball. Um, so that was a really fun conversation. Um, something to look forward to if you stick around till the end. But for now, uh, we're going to stick to our regularly scheduled programming, which is talking about, I don't know, I mean, there's no NBA happening right now, but talking about everything that's going on peripherally with the NBA. Catch, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. I think, um, you know, and all things considered, <clears throat> I hope we're both in the same boat here. You know, obviously there are some tougher days and some days you hit a wall professionally but i think for the most part you know we're we're here we're healthy um we are luckily still employed which you know not even joking about that like that that's a big part of the world right now so you know i think i think definitely there is nothing for me to complain about that um you know is any worse than what other people are going through right now yeah for sure i mean it's always about perspective and i think it's definitely been a struggle sometimes i think to try and put a positive spin on stuff um, and look for silver linings, but you know, I like you, I'm, I'm healthy and uh, fortunate to be employed. I think you know, probably a lot of people have had this experience, but like, I have two grandparents who are in assisted living facilities, um, both of which had um, cases of COVID, and both of them have tested negative. So that was super fortunate, and I'm grateful for that. Same with my um, grandpa, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think it's 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 always just about trying to uh, to keep things in perspective and look at the positive. Stay safe, be responsible, and on a personal level, I feel like in a weird way the weather starting to turn has kind of bummed me out even more. Wow. Because uh, it reminds me of all the stuff that I would be doing if we weren't currently living in the darkest timeline. <laughs> <laughs> like, especially living where we live, like, and for anybody else who lives in a similarly cold climate, like we really do spend eight months of the year waiting for these four months. Yeah. I think the hardest thing is just not knowing, not knowing how long we're going to be living like this and how long it's going to be until we can actually start to do the stuff uh, that makes spring and summer worthwhile. And it's also just this weird sensation of simultaneously feeling like this has been going on forever because nothing's happening. And also feeling like no time has passed because nothing's happening. Cause like since the lockdown started, there's just been like no real way to measure the passage of time because nothing's changed. There's like nothing really to look forward to. And there aren't really moments or events from the past two months that we can reflect back on. It's just uh, like a stretched out present tense where it really feels like we're suspended in time. To kind of bring this to one of the topics for today, more last dance takeaways is like, I think that's what's almost made the last dance feel like such a moment in a way, because we are in this strange world right now where time is meaningless and recouped up. And I don't know, it just, it really does feel like months from now, years from now, even like we will look back at watching the last dance like, I don't want to at all say that it's, you know, meaningful, like watching a regular playoff game or a finals game that's happening in real time. But I really do feel like we will one day look back at watching Last Dance and be like, 
man, like, remember when, like, when the last dance came on and where you were when you were watching it or who you were watching it with because we were locked down? Like, I, re- I really do think it's going to end up having that kind of permanent space in our mind just because of the circumstances of where and when we were watching it. Yeah, it does feel like a, a like a monocultural event right yeah. now, at least in, in the circles that we run in. So why don't we kick off by by talking briefly about the last couple episodes of Last Dance. I know we're going to get into this more because we're going to talk about the baseball stuff in, in the second segment of this podcast with the Expand the Zone guys. But uh, apart from that, did you have any big sweeping takeaways from episode seven and eight? I was definitely really surprised, like uh, moved, I don't think is the right word, but I was surprised about when I was reading reviews for the show before the first week's episode, I had read about how there was one scene that was like pretty surprising and that Jordan needs to stop filming because he's about to cry. And I just assumed, you know, at the time, well, it's probably going to be when they talk about his dad or something, maybe, maybe Kobe, maybe they do one interview like, and it's post Kobe's death and it's a late interview. I I didn't know, but I thought it was going to be something related to that. And then to see that that moment ends up being while he's almost trying to like defend himself or explain to people why they might think he's a jerk and like what drove him and and how he was so competitive and how he never asked anything of his teammates that he didn't demand of himself and he like starts getting himself worked up um i think that stuck out to me you know i know a lot of people will say finally hearing the raw audio of when he was that iconic photo was taken of him uh winning the the fourth title on father's day the first one post comeback first one without his father you know that was obviously a very raw moment hearing Michael Jordan literally wail and weep was obviously very powerful but for me the biggest takeaway was that moment when he starts tearing up because he's like so overwhelmed by the moment of having to explain himself and explain his psychotic competitiveness that you know probably drove a lot of people away I'm actually I'm I'm interested in that because what what do you think specifically was making him so emotional in that moment like do you think it's the feeling of ha- like of knowing that people like think that he's an asshole and that he just like can't be any other way do you think it's just like talking about competition and like how much it's meant to him in his life reflecting on his basketball career like what do you what do you think specifically was making him so emotional I think it was exactly that and I think you know I think it's a good reminder that scene and and how emotional MJ got there that I don't care what a professional athlete says. I don't care what any celebrity says that when they say that they truly don't care what people feel like everyone to a certain extent, maybe some people care more, you know, based on personality traits and whatever, but everyone to a certain extent wants to be liked or Mm -hmm. at at the very least wants to be tolerated. You know, no one, no matter how competitive they are, no one actually wants to be remembered as an asshole. No one wants to be remembered as, as someone that's not worth celebrating. And I think in that moment, you saw that from MJ and it's like, yeah, like, you know, in no world would he trade anything that he accomplished for some of that love. I'm not saying that at all, but does it grate on him that no one can kind of relate to what was driving him and the way he felt and why he was the way he was? Yeah, I think absolutely it probably grates on him. That was kind of the one part of the the documentary that actually graded on me the most. Not like the part of him getting emotional. I thought that was actually really fascinating. But just the idea, and I, I know obviously that MJ is going to frame it this way. Um, and like we've talked about before, like this isn't really anything that we didn't already know about Jordan. But the, I think that the documentary in a way really just buys into this idea that Jordan had to be the way that he was and that 
you know, fear is the best motivator and that, you know, for Jordan to have been like a more emotionally supportive leader would have been impossible uh, or that like the Bulls wouldn't have had the same kind of success that they did if Jordan hadn't been the way that he was. And I don't really believe that at all. And I found it like particularly cynical when they, they like spliced in the footage of Scott Burrell's like one good playoff game from that run when he had like 23 points, I think either in the first or the second round. And they just cut that in with the footage of Jordan, like relentlessly bullying him as if to suggest that like the former wouldn't have been possible without the latter. I found that a little bit hard to take. And I think there are, there's ample evidence, you know, throughout NBA history. Obviously, you know, nobody has quite been the winner that Jordan has, you know, uh, you know, accepting Bill Russell Celtics who were playing in like an eight team league. <laughs> nobody else has won six championships in eight years, but there's enough evidence that there are other ways to lead and that there are other effective motivators outside of fear. I'm not saying that like fear can't be an effective motivator. And I'm not saying that Jordan wasn't a successful leader in his own way. I'm just saying like to present that as like the only way to be was something that I found uh, a little bit difficult to swallow. I think, you know, the fallacy there is that I think Michael Jordan needed to be that way for Michael Jordan. I think Michael Jordan would not have been who he was if not for that psychotic competitive edge. And I think because he was wired that way, he incorrectly assumed that everyone else could be wired that way too. And that if he just demanded the same of those guys, the way he demands of himself, that he would, you know, bring some higher being out of them on the basketball court. And I think that's where his mistakes probably, you know, lie with his teammates and, and some of those memories is that not everyone is wired that way. And the best leaders in any medium, I don't think it just has to be in competition or in sports, but the best leaders are usually the ones that understand that different people require um, different prodding. Some require no prodding. Some, you know, you're going to be more gentle. Like it, Personalities are different and they, they need to be led in different ways and they need to be cultivated in different ways. And I think, you know, Jordan's mistake was that he looked at what drove him and assumed that it could drive everyone else. But like, not everyone's like that. You know, not everyone wants to be told that they're shit. Um, there's, there's a famous quote of Jordan's and I think it was in the, the, Jordan rules, if I remember correctly from reading it when I was younger, but where he refers to the Bulls' three centers at the time, who were all seven-footers, as 21 feet of shit. <laughs> and that absolutely sounds like something Jordan would probably tell them to their faces or in a practice. I could definitely see Jordan saying something like, oh, like to like walking by Krauss and saying something like, oh, you're going to get me better than these like 21 pieces of shit, 21 feet of shit that you've got as my centers right now, you know? And in his mind, he's probably thinking, I am such a great leader. Like this is going to motivate them. They're going to have great games tomorrow or great seasons or turn their careers around. And it's just, you can never assume in life that everyone is wired the way you are, because that's the surest path to isolating yourself and driving people away. Yeah. I thought uh, that Scott Burrell actually put it well in the doc when he was like, yeah, MJ was trying to like get us to, to be on his level. And I'm not, I'm not sure if he understood that like he was the only one that could actually do what he was doing. Like it's not really fair for him to hold anybody else to that standard. And like the other thing is like MJ is sort of full of inconsistencies too, right? Because yeah. on the one hand, you know, he is demanding that everybody show the same commitment that he's showing, you know, be on the same compete level that he's on and care as much as he does. But He's also out like gambling in Atlantic City on the eve of a conference finals game and playing like 36 holes of golf every day. And like 
he was able to do that because he is just like a, a altogether different kind of human that apparently just didn't need to sleep as much as normal people do and was able to essentially like go in and have like an absolutely monumental playoff performance, you know, despite having been up all night the night before. It's if anybody else on the Bulls was doing that shit, like I feel like he would have been at their throats. And it was like his incredible ability and like the way that he was wired is what uh, allowed him to essentially do whatever he wanted while holding people to a standard that he might not necessarily even hold himself to. I'm still in awe and I'll always cherish and admire Jordan's competitive edge. At its core, I don't think there's anything wrong with being like that competitive maniac. Like I said, I think the problem, the problems arise when you take that maniacal competitiveness and you try to like force it into those around you. You know, that's where I think he went wrong. I do think there's like a bit of a line there that we shouldn't cross in that. I think we can criticize him for the way he treated teammates in trying to force them to be like Mike. But I honestly don't think there's anything inherently wrong with with being wired that way himself. No, yeah, um, I agree with that. I just think it, it's just like an interesting um, sort of maybe inconsistency isn't the right word, but like um, he treated people at, like I, I think you already sort of hinted at this, but like he tre- he treated his teammates and other people as if they were wired the way that he was, which just right. isn't the case for you know ninety nine point nine percent of. The population and I think it's also like the, there's something inconsistent about him being this ruthless sometimes cruel um you know competitor above all else who engages in psychological war- warfare um but he can also be like really sensitive and he's also yeah. just like really salty all these years later because the Pistons didn't shake hands at the end of a playoff series <laughs> or he was like purportedly so offended that George Carl didn't say hi to him before the start of the finals. Do you ever read Free Darko? The blog, like when, when that was... Like, uh, yeah, I used to. I used to, yeah. So uh, Nathaniel Friedman, who went by the pseudonym Bethlehem Scholes at the time, I, I don't even remember like what the specific blog post was about, but for whatever reason, like this, the way that he started it, this line is like stuck in my head all these years later. But um, he was like, before I get into this, I need to presage it by saying, I'm a megalomaniac and I'm also really, really insecure. And wow. I feel like that's like a pretty good description of Michael Jordan. Yeah. Obviously he, he sort of buys into his own mythology, but at the same time, he like, you know, sports illustrated writes like a hit piece about his baseball endeavor and he never talks to them again. And like apparently, you know, like him and Charles Barkley don't really talk anymore because Bartley Barkley deigned to like criticize the way that he has managed the Charlotte Hornets. And I think we see this kind of stuff a lot. Like I, I don't know that Michael Jordan and Kevin Durant are necessarily all that similar, but I feel like there's something similar to them in that respect, in that like they are both obviously like at the very, very top of their profession and, and have an aptitude for something the likes of with the likes of which, you know, very few of any people have ever had. And yet they aren't secure enough in that to be able to handle any kind of criticism whatsoever, any perceived slight. And I just think that's a sort of interesting characteristic to have. This is kind of where I was going. If you remember a few weeks ago when we talked about after the episode when they show him beating the 93 Suns and I was saying it's 
it's funny because it almost seems like Charles Barkley, who never won and who never tried to be the role model, just seems in generally more more content than Michael, who was the role model and made a living just winning and beating guys like Chuck. Bit of a shameless plug, but we were talking a couple of weeks ago about how I got to speak to Dirk for something, a piece I'm working on. So for the same piece, I also was very, very, very fortunate enough to speak to Steve Nash. And there was a point in our conversation when Nash says to me, and it'll end up being in the piece as well, but he says that he obviously has a hole in him for never winning. But then he goes on this like really nice diatribe about how, but like he just kind of at some point in retirement realized like, man, only, only one team wins every year. It's a team sport. I was just one of the guys who was never able to get over the hump in a team sport. And at the end of the day, my career had more positives than negatives. I was able to persevere. It kind of got me thinking about the same stuff we were saying with Barkley and Jordan a couple of weeks ago. Where it was like in the moment, yes, winning is everything when you're a professional athlete. But it, it's very interesting that all these years later, you know, we're talking about Michael, like clearly being driven somewhat by insecurities. And then you can listen to a guy like Chuck or a guy like Steve Nash, who is going to be known as this guy who never won or these guys that never won. And yet they seem to have found almost more peace with their careers and not winning than Jordan has with his. Yeah. A hundred percent in a way, like I'm not even really surprised by that. And I don't know if you, you like would quite go as far as saying like those two things go hand in hand, but I do think they're correlated, right? Like Jordan, mm-hmm. and, and this is another thing I guess that bothers me sometimes, which, which is to suggest that like Jordan's competitiveness or like his maniacal work ethic, like that's what set him apart. Like maybe that's true to a certain extent, but I think once you get to a certain point where like, you know, you're talking about the, the top 1% uh, of, of people in like a given profession, like they're all going to be hyper competitive and they're all going to want it to, I think, more or less the same degree. Like sometimes it's just a bit of a fallacy maybe when when that's the thing that we resort to to say like this guy just wanted it more. But like something about Jordan, like he just, nothing has ever seemed to like fully satisfy him or make him happy. I don't know, like in in the present day interviews in the documentary that like, does he seem particularly happy to you? Like he, he seems, he seems perpetually uh, perturbed. Yeah, exactly. And I don't know. And, and so like, if, if he wasn't wired that way, could he have had the success that he had as an NBA player? Like I, I really, I don't know. I don't think there's any way to know. I think it's, it's natural that people are going to equate those two things and see, and see that as like a causal relationship which I mean, I'm just not entirely sure of. I mean, maybe that's the case and maybe it's not. I think my biggest takeaway from all this is just that winning excuses everything. And like, you know, if you win, then whatever you did in the process of winning is going to be seen as a winning formula. And I think that's why I feel, is it revisionist history or, or like survivorship bias is maybe a better way to put it. But obviously, you know, when you look back and you're saying, oh, you did all this winning and like you won in a way that nobody else has won, then whatever went into that, is going to be seen as like a necessary evil or part of the process as opposed to like something that's ancillary and not necessarily positive. And, yeah. and like, you know, we'll never know if Jordan could have won as much as he did by going about it a different way. But the fact that he won doing it the way that he did is naturally going to lead people to say, well, this is the way that you win <laughs> as much as Michael Jordan won. The only other two notes I had, to be honest, from this week's episodes were one, I think it was really badass that the Bulls rocked that 72 don't mean a thing without the ring gear while they were trying to get that ring. Like, I noted this on Twitter too. Like, I'm not at all the, the guy that's like back in my day because I think modern sports are better than uh, older sports. But I do think 
that we can agree that like there, there is no way a team in the modern era would throw their own insanely historic accomplishments from that season under the bus while they were in the middle of that. Like it's not like they printed that gear after they won the title that year. So it it's like easy for them to say that because now they've secured that ring. Like they were rocking that gear immediately after setting the record of 70, 72 wins, but before they had won the title. Their confidence was obviously through the roof. Like They almost just knew they were going to win the title. But I don't know, something about, even though I knew that was the case, something about seeing it like in, in action in the dock really made me realize how badass that was. And then the only other thing is just when you sit back and think about just how much of the last quarter century in NBA history has been viewed through Steve Kerr's eyes. He won five titles as a player, including four straight. He won those titles with two different dynastic teams in the Bulls and the Spurs. He coached one of the greatest teams ever in the Warriors. He coached against finals LeBron and coached in the epic 2016 finals and literally fought Michael Jordan. Has anyone in the last quarter century uh, in the NBA witnessed, like been on hand for more historic moments? Yeah, he's like the NBA's version of Zelig. Like yeah. he, he's just he just is on hand, you know, for yeah. for all these incredibly historic uh, moments, and has obviously been part of of some of the yeah, probably like the two greatest teams in history, honestly. Yeah, and that's just like a hell of a hell of a career, like a, a really like interesting journey for him, uh, both as a player and a coach. And I mean, I doubtless he's going to end up in the Hall of Fame at, at some point in time once his coaching career is done. So, absolutely. All right, let's move on. Uh, I don't, I don't want to talk too much about the sort of push towards resuming the NBA season. I feel like, obviously, there are some new details, uh, which include um, Adam Silver essentially saying he wants to make a decision in the next two to four weeks, um, and the fact that a, a sort of cohort of superstar players have aligned behind, um, have aligned in support of resuming the season. Uh, and you know we, we still have essentially the same proposals as far as um, the preferred destinations for bubble cities, uh, Las Vegas, Disney World, Arizona. And my feelings on that haven't really changed. It does seem like there is a little bit more momentum now uh, towards resuming the season. But you know we we've been writing at the score for you know the last couple weeks, going round by round with our hypothetical playoff bracket. Um, and we started that sort of assuming that there wasn't going to be an actual playoff, which ultimately we might get, uh, and we might essentially just be predicting how the eventual playoff bracket is going to shake out. Um, but I wanted to, because essentially this would be like, we'd be at the tail end of the second round right now. Yeah. Or probably in the, in the few days between the second round and the conference finals. Yeah, I think, I think the conference finals at the earliest would be starting this weekend. We've published a first round hypothetical bracket and a second round hypothetical bracket. I thought we could maybe just go through and explain where we ended up and why we saw it shaking out the way that we see it shaking out. So I'll start by saying I, I think we've been doing this like collaboratively, but I don't know that we necessarily agree completely on every matchup i do think that we we both would end up with the same final four which is lakers and clippers in the west and bucks and raptors in the east yeah but as far as how we would get there i feel like we may have a little bit of disagreement so in the first round i think we both definitely agree that um the one eight like the bucks and magic that's a sweep in favor of the bucks i think i I just don't 
I don't think the Magic have any chance to score consistently yeah. on the Bucks. Um, Lakers, Grizzlies. Uh, I think you also had that as a sweep for the Lakers. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which I think that would be like a fun sweep. That, yeah, I had that. I, I think it would be like a competitive, the type of competitive sweep that really gives you a lot of hope for the Grizzlies' future, but not enough to actually win a game right now. Right. And then Raptors-Nets, I mean, I think that series only really becomes interesting if Durant is somehow yeah. back, which doesn't seem like it's going to be the case. Yeah. Um, Clippers-Mavs, I think, also, I, I kind of had it being a short series. I, I pegged it at five games. I could see it going six. And again, I think that would, would be one that would be really fun, even if it wasn't a particularly long series. Like, I, I think that Doncic might struggle a little bit in his first playoff foray. But that would be the thing that I would be most interested to watch in that series was just how he did, um, specifically against like the Clippers' army of perimeter defenders. And I would assume that they would be throwing a ton of blitzes at him and trying to make other members of the Mavs beat them. Uh, and I also just don't think the Mavs have like the wing defenders to handle the Clippers. So I think that would be fun, like a fun five-gamer, but that the Clippers would win. <laughs> Heat Pacers, I think we both have the Heat advancing in that one. Yeah. Um, but probably in like a pretty scrappy... Six-gamer, uh, I'd say. Like. Yeah, entertaining six-game series. I just think, um, I mean, Oladipo would be the big wild card there, and I actually think he would started yeah. to play quite a bit better toward the tail end of the season before it got suspended. But I think the Heat just had, like, I think they're a little bit better built for the playoffs. I mean, you know you know how I feel about that team. I do, um, I do. <laughs> come, come April, I think they were going to beat somebody up, and unfortunately for the Pacers, that's, that's who they drew. Yeah, and then... Thunder Jazz. Actually, this one was like a coin flip to me. You had the Thunder advancing. I don't. I'm not a hundred percent sure of that. I think gun to my head, I would probably pick the Thunder as well. But um, the interesting thing about those two teams is that they both, like their top sixes, are like really, really good. And after that, it kind of falls apart for both teams. Like the Jazz with their starters on the floor have been really good all year, and it's it's sort of fallen apart with their bench in the game. And the Thunder, like with their starters, actually, like the numbers haven't been great. But basically, if you insert Dennis Schroeder yeah. for, you know, Terrence Ferguson who, or whoever else starts for them at the three, suddenly they're a beast. Suddenly um, they're the, literally the best five-man lineup of the last two years. Right. So with, with like the shortened rosters, I think, I don't know uh, which of those uh, kind of top-heavy teams would prevail. Um, I think I probably have more faith in the Thunder just because I have more faith in Chris Paul than I have yeah. in anyone on the Jazz. And and they've just been a more cohesive unit all year. And like, I know it's one thing if if you're taking a more cohesive unit over the clearly superior talented team, but like in this case, I, like you mentioned, I think their top sixes are pretty even. Uh, the numbers bear out that the Thunder's best lineup is better than the Jazz's best lineup. And then when it's that evenly matched, and one team has just been so much more cohesive throughout the year, I do think something like chemistry could be the difference in a in a series where the talent is so evenly matched. And and like you said, if there's anyone in that series, you know, out of the top players that I trust the most, it's Chris Paul. Yeah, I, I think they have, well, I don't know, like Steven Adams and Rudy Gobert as a matchup is, is pretty interesting to me. Because um, I think, you know, as much as Gobert is just like a fantastic interior defender, Steven Adams is like, has a few pounds on him and is maybe, you know, one of the two or three best offensive rebounders in the league and is one of the few people who I think could actually um, push Gobert around a little bit and maybe like get the Thunder some extra offensive possessions. But they also don't really have the capability of like stretching Gobert out 
because Adams, you know, obviously is a non-shooting center. So uh, that gives Gobert license to maybe hang near the basket and make it difficult for the Thunder to score inside. I think that'd be like a good series. I, I probably pick the Thunder in six, but um, I could also pretty easily see the Jazz winning in seven. And you also had the uh, you had the Nuggets over the Rockets, eh? Yeah. So I thought I think there's two first round series where we would probably have disagreements. Um, and I, I assumed that you would probably pick the Rockets over the Nuggets. This is the one that I struggled the most to call, and I flip-flopped back and forth multiple times uh, between Rockets and six and Nuggets and seven. And ultimately, I think stylistically, this is like the easily the the most interesting matchup to me. I don't know. What do you what do you think? Do you think the Rockets win that one? I do. I'm not I'm not convinced of it. And I you know I, I've read your blurb about that series. I agree with everything you wrote in it. I just I don't think as a team the Nuggets are better than the Rockets by enough of a margin to make up for the top end talent of James Harden and and the way Russell Westbrook was playing as well. You know, and I think that in a playoff series, those two guys would be the best players on the court. And I think it's you think Westbrook would be better than Jokic? Man, the way Russ was playing the last like two and a half, three months was. pretty insane and I know Jokic was all NBA first team level almost as well like but yeah I I do I think in a playoff series I think James Harden and Russell Westbrook would probably be the two best players in that series I I think in that series I don't agree I think Jokic would would be more impactful than Westbrook the reason this matchup is so interesting to me is I, I just don't think that either of these teams have much hope of guarding the other one right um and so you know the what what this really comes down to is like the Rockets are going to play small. That was the all-in gambit that they made. And the Nuggets are a tough team to play small against. Like, Jokic is... He is... You stick a smaller guy on him, and he's going to be able to bust you in single coverage. But if you throw double teams at him, like, you know that he's just going to pick you apart with passing. And if... um, You know, he's basically the best guy in the league... Uh, when it comes to the number of points he's generating out of post-ups as far as both shots that he's taking and, and passes that he's making that are leading directly to shots out of the post. And specifically against a Rockets team that's you know going to play most of its minutes without anybody taller than 6'8 on the floor, I think that's a pretty dangerous proposition. But at the other end, of course, the Rockets are going to be able to make life pretty uncomfortable for Jokic. The, the Nuggets, as far as their perimeter defensive core... I mean, Gary Harris is great, but outside of that, like their guard defenders aren't particularly well equipped to handle Westbrook and Harden. And, you know, they have to worry about Jokic having to defend in space as well. So I really just think that all these games would turn into complete shootouts. And I could definitely see it going either way. I just think it wasn't just about like the scoring with Jokic and the fact that the Nuggets can really succeed a lot by playing big, but also like the Nuggets were... I think the second best offensive rebounding team in the league and the Rockets after going small were like by far the worst defensive rebounding team in the league. And I think that was what I I sort of ultimately used as the tiebreaker is that I just think the Nuggets would be able to control the possession battle to the point that even if they wind up trading a lot of twos for threes, they're still going to like, like generate enough extra possessions to ultimately edge out the series. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. Like, I think I'd still lean Rockets. To be honest, I think, 
you know, as, as great as the Nuggets are and as high as the, the Rockets' ceiling is, I think either team would actually get handled pretty easily by the Clippers in the second round. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. I think I'd lean Rockets in the first round. Um, and then I guess the other one we're, we're definitely going to disagree on is I had 76ers over Celtics. This is I'm really surprised, actually, that you took the Sixers. And obviously, I know you you picked the Sixers to win the East before the start of the season. And I'm you, definitely you, not in that boat anymore. I'll, yeah, I'll make but, but you, you have said all along that you don't really believe in the Celtics. And at least before the season started, you were a big Sixers believer. So there's something to be said for for your consistency there. But in regards to being consistent, this surprised me because I feel like you have always been on the train of, like, if you want to win big in the playoffs, you really need to have, like, a high-end off-the-dribble creator. Yeah. Um, and especially, like, you know, when we've talked about the Nuggets playoff viability in the past, I feel like that's something you always come back to. Yeah. And, and like, Jamal Murray stalling out is one of the reasons that you don't really believe in them as a playoff team, which I think is fair. But, like, I look at this matchup and I think the Celtics have at least the three best <laughs> half-court off-the-dribble creators in the series and maybe even the four best. Like, I think you know, like Ben Simmons is definitely a better player than Gordon Hayward, but... In a half-court setting, you know, against a set defense, short clock, you need to put the ball in somebody's hands and ask them to go and create a shot for you. I think I would take Hayward before I took Ben Simmons. So yeah, that's no, four it, guys on the Celtic. And, like, I would say the same, you know, if you're talking about Tobias Harris or Josh Richardson, I, w- I would take any of Tatum, Kemba, Jalen Brown, or Hayward over any of those guys. So, so I'm I'm curious as to why you picked the Sixers here. Look, I, I in my blurb, I literally wrote that Boston has the more balanced team, is better coached, and has the type of off the dribble shot creation with Tatum, Walker, Jalen Brown, and a resurgent Gordon Hayward that it takes to beat good playoff defenses, which the lengthy Sixers have. So, I, I don't dispute any of that. And the re, that that lack of off the dribble creation on the Sixers end is why I no longer believed in them as a legit Finals threat, but. In a first-round series against Boston, I don't think there is a matchup advantage in this series anywhere near as sizable as the one Joel Embiid would own. Like, who... Like, I've talked all all year, and I think you have too, about if there's one thing that's going to do in the Celtics come playoff time, it's their lack of size. You know, I know Daniel Tice was great this year, but I'm sorry, man. In a playoff setting, I am not counting on Daniel Tice to guard Joel Embiid. And I know a lot of this comes down to Joel Embiid being in good shape and being healthy, but I uh, I think the the matchup advantage Joel Embiid and the Sixers would have down there, even in 2020 when you're just dumping the ball into the post, which doesn't seem to make sense for this. Like I think it is a big enough advantage that the Sixers could milk it to a series win, and nothing more than that. I have them going out in the second round. But I think in this particular matchup, they, they could absolutely feast on a small Boston team. But I think the Celtics play a really good team defense. I think they do a really good job of helping and recovering. And I think Embiid struggles at times to deal with double teams. And the Sixers, the way that that team is constructed, a lot of the time they make it easy to double team because they just don't have enough shooting threats on the floor. Um, so, you know, I think... Look, yes, it's a mismatch, him going against Tice uh, in terms of size. I think you're going to laugh, but, like, Ennis Cantor is huge. And, yeah, no, he's strong. Cantor's strong. And, and I know, you know, like, you put Cantor in pick and roll or you make him defend in space and it's going to be a problem. 
But like the Sixers don't really run a lot of pick and roll and they don't really stretch you out. Uh, so I think as far as, you know, what they would be asking Cantor to do, like Cantor was really good for the Blazers in the playoffs last year. And I think, you know, just asking him to sort of bang down low with Embiid and just be really big, like he's going to bite on some pump fakes. He's going to put Embiid on the line. He's not the greatest rim protector in the world, but like he can definitely hold his own as a post defender. And I think for like, you know, 15, 20 minutes a game, that would be fine. Tice, like you mentioned, I think has been really good, even if he might get overwhelmed at times by just, uh, you know, being out of his weight class against Embiid. I think the Celtics certainly have enough as far as just like team defense uh, and the way that they can kind of play these sort of hybrid zone schemes uh, to to help their big guys out. I think that would be enough where like Embiid's not going to beat them by himself. And I just don't know if the Sixers have enough around Embiid uh, to win that series when, uh, you know, we're talking about the kind of disparity in off the dribble shot creation that we're talking about. Yeah, I do still think the Sixers have enough. Like, I think how dysfunctional they were this season kind of distracts from the fact that there is still a lot of talent on that team. Like, if you if you go into a series and your top seven-ish is Embiid, Simmons, Harris, Horford, Richardson, Tybal. Um, and I feel like I'm missing just one more guy, but I think that's enough uh, in a first round series. And I get that Boston's better than I gave him credit for early in the season, but I don't know, man, like, I, I don't think Embiid would have to beat them by himself. I just think that his advantage in this series would be so mammoth that it would override any of the other advantages Boston has in this series. I know, I can, I'm also surprised like, in, in, in our piece, you had them winning a game seven in Boston, even though see, yeah, and I know that's what 10 I, and 24 I, I, on the road this season. Yes, they're a terrible road team. And so I was going to go with the Sixers and six, but then I also like at that point, I just don't believe, like, I don't think, like, I think this series would go the distance and I realize how bad the Sixers are in the road. But again, it's like the playoffs are just such a different animal and I don't want to discount Boston's home court advantage, but give me a game seven between these two teams. Like if you're, if you put this Celtics roster and this Sixers roster in front of my eyes and you say, these two teams are going to play one game and a winner take all, I don't care where that game is played. The Sixers are winning. Okay. Well, I mean, we, we may soon find out both where <laughs> that game is played and who wins. All right. Yeah, so in, grand in Las Vegas. Yeah. Uh, all right. So in the second round, that leaves us with Keep uh, and beat away from the buffet. Um, in the second round, that leaves us with Lakers, Thunder, Rap Sixers in your estimation, Rap Celtics in my estimation, Clippers, Nuggets for me, Clippers, Rockets for you, and then Bucks, Heat for both of us. Um, Lakers, Thunder, I mean, I- I've enjoyed watching the Thunder this season. Um, I think, again, they would put up a spirited fight. You had this as a sweep. I definitely think the Thunder would take a game in this series, um, but, I- but I don't see them upsetting the Lakers. Um, now, Raptors, Sixers, I would definitely like the Raptors in that series. Raptors, Celtics, to me, is a lot closer. And it's funny because I remember saying, like, this was probably, like, a couple of weeks before the shutdown where we were comparing the Raptors and Celtics and trying to decide who would win a playoff series. And I think we both basically said we would give it to whichever team ended up with home court advantage. Yeah. And that it would probably go seven, but that at a neutral site, um, I said at a neutral site, I might give a tiny edge to the Celtics, which we might be looking at a neutral site. Um, so I don't know, actually, but I I think the Raptors are just like a little bit more complete as yeah. a team. 
And it's hard to say because both of these teams have been banged up all year and we haven't seen a ton of either of them at full strength. Um, but, uh, but I probably at this point, um, would just like flip my vote and have the Raptors edging out the Celtics in seven. Yeah. I think it would be a great series. I really do. Um, it'd be like a really great mix of veteran talent, like Kyle Lowry, but also this like young up and coming talent, like Jason Tatum and Pascal Siakam and, uh, both teams deep, both teams extraordinarily coached. Although I think Nick Nurse is a better coach than Brad Stevens is. Yeah, no, I, I think it would be a really fun, even series that uh, at the end of the day, th- there's more reason to trust the Raptors' talent prevailing than there is to trust the Celtics' talent based on A, what we saw last year and and what we know of them this year. Yeah, I think it would just come down... I mean, the the sort of off-the-dribble creation advantage still exists for the Celtics in this matchup, I think. The gap is a lot narrower. Um, I mean, Kyle Lowry is a fantastic creator. Siakam has become quite an effective creator. Um, So I think, you know, as far as generating half-court offense, I think the Raptors would be far better equipped to do that than the Sixers would, um, while still being able to defend the Celtics quite well. I think this would be really interesting fodder for, you know, this argument or this debate has sprung up about who's better between Tatum and Siakam. Um, And it happens sort of organically just because they're both on these really successful teams that play in the same division. They're, they're essentially, I mean, Tatum's younger, but they're basically on the same kind of development timeline because Siakam just sort of got a later start. And I think it's really interesting because they play completely different styles and uh, there's an interesting conversation about which one of those styles is more effective and more conducive to winning in the playoffs. And Siakam, you know, obviously was part of a championship team last year, but I would say he was like the third best player on that Raptors team. And that's, that's a different story than what he would be asked to do for the Raptors in the playoffs this year. I'm assuming we both got bucks <laughs> pretty handily over the heat. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I had them winning in six. So, yeah. Um, winning six. I think, you know, the, the heat do have some things working in their favor in this matchup. You know, the Bucks obviously give up a ton of above-the-break threes. The Heat were the best above-the-break three-point shooting team in the league this season. And oddly enough, they actually shot better above-the-break than from the corners. That's definitely a rarity. I, I think the issue is, like, the guys that are driving that success as far as above-the-break three-point shooting, whether it's pick-and-pop guys like Myers Leonard, Kelly Olynyk, or, you know, just whatever a Duncan Robinson is, you know, they, I think they're a little short on two-way players where like the guys that they rely on to goose their offense are defensive liabilities. And a lot of the guys they depend on for defense maybe are going to cripple their spacing at the offensive end of the floor. Like they would really need Derek Jones Jr. in this matchup. And they would really need Iguodala in this matchup. And I think at the other end of the floor, the Bucks would just like totally ignore those guys. And, and for to depend on Jimmy Butler at the offensive end, I mean, Jimmy Butler's jump shot completely fell off a cliff this season, and he managed to sustain his efficiency just by, like, getting to the rim and getting to the free throw line at will. But, like, the Bucks are the best rim-protecting team in, like, two decades, and they're also one of the most foul-averse teams in the league. So I don't know if that would really hold up for him. Look, I think the Heat are one of the teams um, uniquely built to at least trouble the Bucks. I would still have faith in Jimmy in a playoff series, although I would be a lot more concerned about it this year, given the way his jump shot did fall off a cliff. You know, the Heat the heat can shoot 
and they can defend the perimeter. I think if I remember correctly, when I was talking earlier this year about teams that could match up with the Bucks because they both rank highly in, in shooting themselves, but also can defend the perimeter. The Heat and the Raptors, I think, were actually the two teams I talked about. But anyway, yeah, I think the Bucks survived this series probably in six with only a couple of scares, but I think they come out of it very beat up. Well, I mean, and I didn't talk about Adebayo, but obviously he showed you know, great ability to defend Giannis, like as good as pretty much anybody in the league. And, uh, you know, what makes him such a phenomenal defender and and such a, I mean, to the extent that there's an ideal Giannis defender, he's probably as close as you can get. Like if they want him to sort of press up on Giannis on the perimeter and be like that first line of defense, he can absolutely do that. And if they want him to be the last line of defense, who's kind of hanging back and waiting for him at the rim, then he can do that too. So that's a really effective countermeasure. Um, but ultimately I just think that the, the Bucks would probably have an easier time scoring on the Heat than the Heat would have scoring on the Bucks in this matchup. Um, I think the only one left is Clippers Nuggets. It's funny. Like, so I picked the Nuggets to beat the Rockets. I think the Rockets would have a much better chance of upsetting the Clippers than the Nuggets would. I think the Nuggets basically would have no hope in this matchup, unfortunately. I agree with that. Like I said, I, I think the Clippers would actually handle either the Nuggets or the Rockets pretty easily. Yeah, but the Rockets, I just think, given their variance and given the fact that, like, you know, playing small against the Clippers is, I think, it's an interesting debate, right? Like, do you, if you're the Rockets, like, would you rather play small against a team that usually likes playing big, or would you rather play small against a team that likes playing small but can arguably play small ball better than you can? Yeah, I think I'd almost rather play against a team that's big and hope that that you can I'm, make them more uncomfortable. Exactly, and I can make them. exactly. Um, so yeah, I think like that's what the issue they would run into against the Clippers, where like they want to play small. The Clippers are like, okay, fine, like we'll put Marcus Morris at the five, or you know, we can put Harrell at the five, and and we'll match small ball for small ball and we're just going to do it better than you because we have freaking Kawhi Leonard and Paul George um so yeah I think either way uh I I don't think either of those teams is giving the Clippers too much trouble I think the Clippers would would rather see the Nuggets I just don't Jokic could definitely get his against that Clippers front line but I don't think he would get a whole lot of help in that matchup um like I don't see you know we're talking about how important off the dribble creation is in a playoff series I don't see Jamal Murray or like no. Will Barton or Gary Harris doing a whole lot of damage against the Clippers perimeter defenders. No, they, they would get eaten alive. So yeah, so so that is where we would end up uh, in the conference finals with the Bucks and the Raptors in a rematch of last year's East Finals and the Battle of LA with the Clippers and Lakers. Um, Which might be the most watched conference finals ever. Right. Even though it's not, as it stands right now, not going to be played in LA if it's played at all. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, uh, like I said, it does seem like there is momentum toward restarting the season. So we may ultimately get to see whether these playoff matchups play out the way that we predicted. I mean, we'll also have to wait and see if that happens, uh, whether, I mean, I don't think there's any chance they play any more of the regular season. I just think that would be so foolish. So will they freeze the standings and play the matchups as they are now? Will we get best of sevens throughout, or are they going to shorten some of the earlier rounds? Uh, A lot is still to to be decided. And again, I would certainly not rule out the possibility that the season still does just get canceled, but I'm maybe not feeling uh, as confident in that prediction as I was a week or so ago. Yeah, yeah. seems to be a little bit more hope today than there was a week ago. So with that, let's take a break, and we're going to come back and talk to Jonah and Mike 
about Michael Jordan's baseball career. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For Soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. The Score's MMA podcast with James Lynch gives you your mixed martial arts fix. And the Fantasy Football podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. What is going on, people? We are delighted to be joined by our colleagues, the hosts of the Expand the Zone podcast, the delightfully articulate Jonah Bierenbaum and his intrepid co-host, Michael Bradburn. Guys, a true pleasure. We've been talking about doing a crossover episode for a while. Uh, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's, it's our pleasure. All it took was a literal global collapse for this to happen. <laughs> well, you know. Silver linings and all that. <laughs> the reason I wanted to have you guys on is because the only monocultural event I think that we have going on right now is The Last Dance, this documentary about the 90s Chicago Bulls. And the latest entries in the series delved into Michael Jordan's baseball exploits. And I was sort of inspired by the segment that you guys have on Expand the Zone, which is called This Legend is Overrated in which you just tear down <laughs> these absolute stalwarts and legends of the game and debunk any notions that they were actually as good as anybody thinks or says they were. So I was thinking about that as I was watching this documentary and the talking heads were extolling Michael Jordan's baseball abilities. And don't get me wrong, I think... It is incredibly impressive that this guy went from not having played competitive baseball for 13-odd years to hitting 200 in double-A. 202. 202. My apologies. Uh, but hearing uh, his double-A manager, Terry Francona, and Jerry Reinsdorf, and any number of other people who were saying, you know, essentially with like a thousand more at-bats, this guy would have gotten to the major leagues. I got this idea in my head that I had to have you guys on to explain to me why this legend is overrated. So, <laughs> so, so I want to get you guys' take on Michael Jordan, the baseball player. And I'll start out with you, Bradburn, because I saw you put out a tweet after those episodes aired comparing Jordan's double-A slash line to that of one Tim Tebow. So I'm wondering, first of all, I mean, how impressive is it for... Jordan, who hadn't played baseball, as far as we know, you know, from the time he was 17, 18 years old, getting thrown immediately into double A and putting up the slash line that he did, where I think he had a 556 OPS, hit three home runs, stole 30 bags. How impressive was that? And do you agree that he was on a track to become a major leaguer in a couple more years? Uh, Yeah. So I think it can be both extremely impressive that a person went a decade without holding a baseball bat essentially and jumping into double a and the only reason he jumped into double a as they uh, divulged on the last dance was because um it was the only level it was like the lowest minor league level with media outfits large enough to contain michael jordan so 
that was kind of incredible. So it is remarkable that he would jump to that high of a minor league level and hit 200, but at the same time, 202. 202. <laughs> Sorry. With a 289 on base percentage, that's that's like the highlight right there because I'm pretty sure his slug was like 260. He was 266. terrible. Where were you on that one, Cash? 266. <laughs> <laughs> You're selling my guy short here. Well, actually, like the on base, I mean, his walk rate was above 10%. And that was when I looked at like his baseball reference minor league page. I think that was the thing that impressed me the most. Agreed. I, I do wonder how many of those walks were the function of the fact that it was literally Michael Jordan in the box <laughs> and he had a very, very charitable strike zone because he was literally Michael Jordan. Or just even minor league pitchers being like, oh my God, I, I can't throw Michael Jordan a strike right now. And I'm definitely not coming inside. I am not being the guy who plunks <laughs> yeah. Michael Jordan. Right. Yeah. Also, I mean, there are those legends about Joe DiMaggio's hit streak and how kind of toward the tail end of it, pitchers would essentially just like, throw him slop and try and just like help him keep that hip streak going. So, I mean, I guess they go into it a little bit in the doc where they talk about how he was basically, he was seeing fastballs for maybe the first couple of weeks and he had that somewhat fluky 13 game hip streak. Um, and then just started seeing breaking ball after breaking ball. So I guess people weren't feeling especially charitable towards him, but. But I, I feel like that in and of itself is kind of, or maybe, maybe not overly impressive, but like, I don't know if someone if someone had told you Michael Jordan was going to go play baseball and he was going to play double A ball and within the first two weeks pitchers were actually going to have to start throwing him some funky stuff some like breaking balls and curves because he was like enough of a threat that he could he could scratch out a hit every game you know if they if they weren't I like I still would have been like oh really like even before watching the Last Dance you know like. Between Wolfon and I, I'm sure for the most part, we thought we knew just about as much as we could know about MJ and his career and everything that happened. But that was one part that surprised me. Like I knew I had heard all the kind of BS about how well, if he had 1500 more bats, he could have made the majors. Like I had heard that before and I knew that his average wasn't good. And I, I had seen the errors in the outfield. But the one thing I never really knew or uh, I guess paid attention to was the fact that he opened with, you know, I, I get it was fluky, but he opened with a 13 game hit streak. And the fact that pitchers did actually change their approach a little bit because they realized, okay, like he's not just some schlub off the street. We can't just throw heat by him. We actually do have to mix it up a bit. Yeah, I imagine over those first two weeks or so, his batting average on balls in play was probably like 500. And pitchers realized if he smacks a ball to the left side of the infield, he's got enough foot speed that he's going to leg out right. some base hits. So they recognized, oh, okay, we're not just going to throw him fastballs that he can, uh, you know, stick his bat, bat out and poke yeah. and eke out a single because you know I think that slugging percentage is a much better proxy for quality of contact and the fact that he slugged less than his OBP is incredibly damning and like you 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 see like those few clips that they did have of Jordan every ball was just smoked into the ground right I don't think he hit a ball in the air his entire summer uh so he hit one homer I think three he had three oh. which is which is in and of itself incredible yeah, absolutely. But I, I remember thinking that too. It was like, they're showing these highlights and I'm like, they're all the dinkiest possible hits, like choppers that he legged out or like balls that he just kind of got a bat on and blooped over the shortstop. His swing was, to put it charitably, uh, ugly. Yeah. yeah. That's, it, that's being kind. His swing, you know what it looked? His swing looked like a two out approach at all times. I just want to get the barrel on. Like, I just want to get contact on this thing. Right. It honestly reminds me of Ben Revere's swing, 
which everything went into the ground with Ben Revere. Yeah, he also only hit singles. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to, like, even ignoring the numbers for a second, which, you know, were fairly ugly, but did you guys, was there anything about his mechanics that made you guys think, oh, he's figuring it out, and this looks like a potential future big league hitter? No. Uh, (laughs) Aesthetically, uh, biomechanically, his swing... Uh, just didn't look like that of a professional baseball player, which is understandable. He was not a professional baseball player, but yeah, it, it was it was ugly. And the fact of the matter is, you know, his his physical gifts that made him that helped him become such a star in basketball were, I think, somewhat detrimental as a baseball player. Like you don't really see six foot six position players for the most part. You know, that's a lot of body to try to control and to try to. Uh, distill into a compact swing where you're efficiently transferring energy. You know, most players that are six foot six and taller are pitchers. Uh, you know, it, it it makes it uniquely challenging uh, when you're that tall trying to right. uh, have a compact swing. And I think that was very much uh, epitomized by Michael Jordan, whose swing was uh, janky. Baseball fans even heard that when when Aaron Judge was coming up and we all thought this was a completely unsustainable stretch with Aaron Judge because he was just such a huge human being. But obviously, Judge makes it work. Do we have stats from AA on uh, defensive metrics and his like fielding stats, or are those not available in AA? There are no advanced advanced metrics. Yeah, but he made 11 errors in the outfield. He was by far the Birmingham Barons' worst defensive outfielder. Yeah, because, I mean, a couple of the clips they showed – on on a couple of routine flies that he botched. I mean, it looked like it was practically like a practice day and he was just shagging fly balls and they somehow were falling like five feet to the left of him. There's one clip in uh, in Jordan Rides the Bus, which is like the 30 for 30 doc about his, his baseball season. Uh, and, and there's one clip where he makes a diving catch in the outfield. <laughs> I'm sure it had nothing to do with his like poor route running or like precisely in the first place. Absolutely not. Spectacular diving play to compensate for an inefficient route and terrible read. But I will say, like, this is going to make me sound like one of those Kaji Oakland A's scouts circa 2001, but, like, the guy filled out a uniform pretty damn well, you know? Like, <laughs> if, if, you, if you didn't see him do anything, like, the guy looked like a ball player. But can he I mean? get on base? Where's Jonah Hill when you need him? Listen, 10% walk rate, man. Come on. Good-looking ball player. Like ten percent walk rate and only like a I think like a twenty two percent strikeout rate. Which yeah, but for the was, time that was outsized. Right. Like he mm-hmm. was a twenty two percent strikeout rate in the big leagues in nineteen ninety four would have been you know among the fifteen worst uh, among qualified hitters. Like strikeout rates you know twenty five years ago weren't what they are today. Yeah, until right. Mark Reynolds made the majors, strikeout <laughs> rates were not were not high. So. <laughs> What what I think is curious then is that okay like I get I get that there is I don't know I guess some fun with hyperbole and exaggeration and that's why you got you know guys like Jerry Reinsdorf who who would have had a financial like vested interest in Jordan making the majors and maybe selling some tickets but like I don't know like what's in it for Francona you know a very accomplished manager that they're interviewing two decades later with plenty of accomplishments in the majors like what's in it for him. Just like as as a respectable baseball mind, 
to say, I think he could have been a major league ball player with 1,500 more at-bats. Just, just he doesn't want to be one of the people that like Michael Jordan holds a grudge against for the rest of his life. <laughs> yeah. Bet, betting against Michael Jordan was was not a particularly wise thing to do. And I think he was just such a firm believer in Michael Jordan's indefatigable work ethic and sheer force of will that you know he wanted to believe that the supreme athlete that Michael Jordan was, he could have found a way to eke out some success as a big league ball player. Yeah, I mean, there are those like legends about him just spending hours upon hours in the cage, like until his hands were bleeding. And then there's this this nugget about the Arizona Fall League, where he goes and he hits 252. I couldn't find like the any sort of expanded stat line for him, but they're notoriously uh, difficult to find. Yeah, yeah. From what I gathered, um, he did not hit any home runs. Had 31 hits. And 34 strikeouts, but 252 in the fall league. I mean, can you guys contextualize that? Like, how how impressive is that? Even in you know a, a relatively small, like 120 odd at bat. To me, it's still not extremely impressive. It's you're facing children at the Arizona Fall <laughs> League. Like those those are the the best prospects you can face. Usually, teams it's it's a compressed league where teams send their top prospects to a bunch of fewer teams. So like six, between six and 10 teams usually participate where prospects from multiple teams are participating on one team. And usually the player that like wins the Arizona Fall League MVP is a very, very good prospect. You won't hear me say anything bad about those top prospects, but it's still, they're like 20 year olds and you're a 30 year old in the Arizona Fall League. And that's not a league you repeat as well. So when we hear Francona say with 1500 at bats, he might make the majors. We're looking at like four more years of development for Jordan there too. Like 1500 at bats is not a small amount. And now you're looking at a 34 year old Michael Jordan potentially trying to make the majors. Like I think Francona knows what he's saying when he says that. And like for people that know what he's saying, he's saying he would never have made it. Like he's he's actually saying there's no chance Jordan would have stuck around the minor leagues for three more years to to find out if he was a major league caliber player. And honestly, major leaguer doesn't necessarily mean like a good major leaguer. It just means right. a player that takes a position. And I I do I do want to note, sort of cash uh, to your point. I think. Michael Jordan would have made the big leagues, and I think he could have made the big leagues as soon as 1995. Jerry Reinsdorf, who owned the Cubs and the Bulls, wasn't going to let the most famous athlete in the history of the planet languish in the minor leagues in perpetuity and squander that insane earning potential. And the White Sox, uh, after all, were 10 games back of first place, uh, pardon me, of 500 at the All-Star break in 95, and they were 17 games back of first. Michael Jordan, I imagine, would have been called up to AAA at some point in 95 if he hadn't started the season there. And he probably would have been summoned to Chicago for the stretch run to boost those attendance numbers. That year, the White Sox finished ninth among the 14 uh, American League clubs in attendance. Would he have earned a call-up on merit? No. I mean, he was ultimately terrible in A. He was Birmingham's worst player. He couldn't hit or play the outfield. And he stole 30 bases, but he was caught 18 times. That's a terribly <laughs> inefficient rate. And uh, to Michael's point, it would have taken him years to potentially build up his skills to the point where he could have been passably competent, not let alone in the majors, but in the upper levels of the minor leagues. And by that point, after getting 1,500 at-bats, 
his physical skills would have been in decline. So, uh, yeah, I, I think he would have made the majors had he stuck with baseball, but he would not have been a major league ball player. Right. There's even a rumor that the Oakland A's offered him a major league deal right right away because they knew it would be such a, a boon for attendance. Because he filled out a uniform so well, and back then they saw the old Oakland A's scouting department, you know, before Billy Bean cleaned them all out. Yeah, it was run by Sandy Alderson, who went on to be the general manager of the New York Mets. So that tells you all you need to know. Riding the the bus with the Birmingham Barons is one level of self-deprecation for Michael Jordan, but that man was not going to play in the Oakland Coliseum, all right? Have some some self-respect, okay? (laughs) Yeah, no, I I think that all makes sense. Honestly, for me, I feel like – well, actually, back to the Reinsdorf point, because um, Jonah, I'm not, I don't know if you've been like watching much of The Last Dance, but one thing I didn't even know, I'm not sure if Wolfhard knew it until episode one, when they start getting into like how the Bulls hated Jerry Krause, is that Jerry Krause, the like executive who built the Bulls dynasties, was a White Sox scout. Scout. Yep. And and I mean, like to Krause's credit, he obviously ended up doing for the most part a great job in the NBA, other than his you know, ego getting in the way, but it's pretty hilarious when you consider that like Jerry Reinsdorf's big thing when he also bought the Bulls was not to like go out and find some sharp basketball mind, but was to give the top basketball job to one of his baseball scouts. Yeah, it's crazy. And I think it reinforces how back in the day, like there were so many disparate paths you could take to become a high level sports executive. Now it's all Ivy leaguers and, you know, economics majors and what have you. But back in the day, you know, if you showed a certain propensity or a certain set of skills, you know, uh, you could, you could apparently rise from the level of lowly baseball scout to architect of the most successful basketball dynasty in history. (laughs) Just like that. Yeah. But the the one thing I was going to say is I think, for me anyway, and the thing I've always maintained is more so than like how impressive what Jordan did in baseball was. Cause I agree with you guys that, you know, obviously he was not good for that level. He was essentially like an old high school ball player that was now trying his hand in double a for me. It was never so much about how impressive what he did was as it was just about how batshit crazy the entire ordeal was. It's and absolutely that's what I was insane. About this Sunday night, I was saying like, Jordan leaving basketball to go play baseball, coming back, it's been incredibly covered. It's obviously always talked about. It's now in the last dance. There's been a 30 for 30 about it. And yet I still firmly believe that we could never actually accurately describe how batshit insane that actually is. Like imagine, imagine if after LeBron's second title with the Heat in 2013, he left the NBA at the peak, at like the height of his powers, because he was finally going to go chase that high school dream of playing football. But obviously you can't just go to the NFL. So he's like playing with the blue bombers for a summer. Or something. You know, like, but I'm serious. That's essentially how insane this would be. It's like if LeBron was spending a summer with the blue bombers being covered by like CHCH Winnipeg, you know, like it's completely unfathomable. And if it had happened in the internet age or the social media age, like the internet would have broken. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that, that example is, is is totally apt like it it my brain can't compute and right. and i at the time like the most successful basketball player the most famous athlete in the history of the world in the at the height of his powers choosing to go play a different sport that he had never played really it's mind-boggling it's utterly mind-boggling 
and doing it in Birmingham, Alabama, in the minor leagues. Like, yeah. I loved when um, when he's going shopping for his rental home too, and the real estate agent is like, "She he had to have a basketball goal." <laughs> it was it's so funny. Um, yeah, well, I mean, so so part of that whole thing is like Sports Illustrated wrote this piece with the headline "Baggett Michael." Jordan and the White Sox are embarrassing baseball. And I think ultimately everybody made out in this whole adventure pretty well, right? Like, I think this is probably good for minor league baseball. It was good for the Birmingham Barons. It was good for Tito Francona. And it seemed to be good for Jordan too, as far as just, you know, spending some time away from basketball, you know, reigniting his competitive fire, getting to spend some time processing the death of his father, you know, I wouldn't say he was out of the spotlight, but probably not in the spotlight to the extent that that he was, obviously, when he's winning championships with the Bulls. So, you know, regardless of whether you think the whole thing was was a gimmick or ill-conceived, I think uh, I think everybody got something out of it. Yeah, I, I often wonder if, you know, Francona goes on to have, like, a Hall of Fame caliber manage, manager career, and, like, not every minor leaguer gets to manage in front of that much media, right? Like, Actually, 0% of other minor league managers get that much media attention. So the fact that Michael Jordan came, I, I do wonder if that affected Terry Francona's honest-to-God career. And and like he had just started uh, at the management level. He had been a coach for, I think, four years before that. But just as, just essentially began his, his management career and you know quickly moves through, famously ends the Red Sox drought winning a championship in 2004 with the Red Sox. And it's just, it's honestly incredible. Yeah, three years later, three years after uh, he managed MJ, Francona was in the big leagues. And pretty much since then, outside of a three-year gap uh, between his uh, first managerial stint, that was with the Phillies, and him taking on uh, the Red Sox gig in 2004, he's been uh, a big league manager that whole uh, entire span. So yeah, I, I totally hear your point. And I mean, how, how how beneficial was it for baseball as an institution? Think about it. After Michael Jordan left, the sport went on strike. That was it. Baseball <laughs> could not exist without Michael Jordan in it. No, uh, yeah. I jest. But yeah, I, I, I definitely think it, it did more probably for, for Michael than it did for, for minor league baseball. Uh, you know, Michael clearly needed that reprieve, uh, particularly to catch his breath and, and get out of the limelight as best he could following the the tragic uh, death of his father. But, you know, anytime uh, minor league baseball can can enjoy even a temporary uh, profile boost, it's it's beneficial to the entire institution of minor league baseball and to that, you know, those individual communities as well. So, yeah, I, th- I think it was, it was successful for, for all parties. Even though Michael Jordan didn't realize his dreams of becoming a major league baseball player, I think it still served him. And uh, I hope it at least brought him some catharsis. Yeah, I always did wonder how how it would feel to be like one of his teammates on that team, especially if you were maybe like a fourth outfielder on that team who was almost certainly like better at baseball than Michael Jordan, but is having your path to playing time blocked as this guy gets, you know, 500 plate appearances and is going up there hacking away and flubbing routine plays in the outfield. Like, would you would you feel burned by that? Like, would you be upset or would would you just be like, man, this is fucking amazing. <laughs> I'm playing baseball with Michael fucking Jordan. The same argument comes up with Tebow, that it, it loved the thought that he's taking a roster spot from a more legitimate prospect. But 
I don't know, man. The the like older I get, the less I'm willing to hear that argument because I know you're taking a job from somebody, but at the same time, Tebow is trying to do something as well. Like Tebow is trying to make the major leagues. He's he's riding the bus just like everybody else. He's taking a minor league salary just like everybody else. And Jordan was too. So like I don't really Jordan was also still collecting his Bulls check though. Yes, that is fascinating. <laughs> and actually. Tebow got, I believe, an $100,000 signing bonus when he signed on with the Mets. Yeah, so they're like, what is that? A, a, roughly a sixth round pick. Uh, the bonus a sixth round pick would get in the MLB draft. So, yeah, they're getting bonuses, but like, I don't know. They're They're still trying. They're still out there every day. Actually, they're not just doing it. Like Billy Butler of the Kansas City Royals, Oakland A's, if your listeners don't know, he was bad at baseball, but could hit home runs just like retired from baseball at, I think 32 and now plays in a softball league where he just mashes all the time. Like he could have gone to the minor leagues if he wanted to, but no, he just wants to play softball. That's fine. Softball's dope. Agreed. <laughs> the two alternate timelines I want to acknowledge just by the way, are one for, for the basketball folks on this podcast. Does he win eight straight championships if he doesn't do this? And no. Really? I don't think so. Yeah, Jordan himself actually has said he doesn't think they would have won eight straight championships. Because I just think the burnout, the emotional and physical exhaustion, and the team itself was also going into kind of like a transitional phase. And, and maybe like Kukoc coming in the following season and Pippen, you know, sort of continuing to elevate his game, like that probably would have helped. I just think like there's a reason that even the best teams, like even a team like the Warriors that is just far and away the most talented team in the league, like they can't keep it going for that long because of, you know, whether it's internal infighting or just the accumulated wear and tear of playing a hundred plus games every year. I, I mean, I, I won't say those like totally impossible just because that team was so much better than any other team. And Jordan was so much better than any other player that played in that era. But I think, I think eight in a row is just a bridge too far. I, I think that um, not only would they have not won eight, I think had Jordan not stepped away and like the moves made were made in those two years, like I think you can make the argument they maybe don't even end up winning six of eight because huh. any like the burnout that they show in the last dance for Jordan after season three, like if he had rolled that into the 93-94 season, yeah, I don't think they win that year because they're burned out. And like Joe mentioned, the team was going through a transitional phase and then the Rockets rose up with Hakeem. And then even if they do maybe win one of those two that the Rockets won, but if Jordan had never had that mental break, you know, do they have the juice to go 72 and 10 and 95, 96? Do they still have the juice to beat two insanely good Utah teams by the end of that run? So maybe they win like one of the two while Jordan, uh, in the two years Jordan was away, but maybe then they don't win all three in the second three piece. So yeah, I think I think asking them to win eight in a row, even for that team and, and for Jordan, would have just been too much. So by switching to baseball, what you're saying is Michael Jordan invented load management. <laughs> yeah, he invented load management. And he, he added to this now like mythical goat stature that a lot of people think even a guy like LeBron can never touch just because of like how mythical what Jordan had going was but if you really think about it it's like man if he had never actually stepped away like stepping away added to his lore 
because, you know, even when they lost in 95, people say, well, Jordan was off 18 months. You can't expect him to just come back and win it right away. Like, yeah, LeBron can never be the GOAT until he goes and has 14 receptions for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. (laughs) (laughs) My, My question is, does Space Jam happen if MJ doesn't step away to play baseball? That's a great question. I don't know. I guess it depends how early he was in talks with uh, Warner Brothers. Yeah. What was your uh, – Bradburn, didn't you say you had a second alternate timeline or was that it? Yeah, so the second alternate timeline takes us back to the Arizona Fall League. We know after he hit 250 in Arizona Fall League, which is a month-long league, he is going to get promoted to the AAA team because we know for for a fact that uh, the AAA Nashville club was doing an ad involving Michael Jordan. So – we know he would have got promoted, but then the strike happens. So I'm wondering if the strike never happens, and maybe this is like a question for Jonah or all of you. If the strike never happens, does Jordan like go back to basketball ever? Is he just a baseball player from then on out? Or like, I don't know. I think he still ends up going back to basketball. I think it was admirable that he toughed it out, you know, one one challenging season of, of, you know, struggling at the plate and struggling defensively and also living a, a less than glamorous lifestyle. But at the end of the day, I think he would have recognized at the age of 32 that uh, it was time for him to buttress his NBA legacy and return to the sport where he had, he, he was in the makings of becoming the best and most celebrated player ever. And I think irrespective of, of the strike, he probably would have ended up returning to the Bulls in 95. Less than glamorous, but he did have a basketball goal in his driveway in Birmingham. So, <laughs> Living the dream. That, folks, is why you always hire a real estate agent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, in that alternate timeline, the 94 Expos are World Series champs. Mm. Michael Jordan probably has a MLB baseball reference page where, I mean, could, maybe he could have been like a Terrence Gore, like just utility. He sucks at stealing runner. bases, too, yeah. though. Like, that's the thing. He, I love that people don't focus on the 30 stolen bases, to be honest, because that's that's another thing that jumps off the page. Like the 289 on base, which is decent, and the 30 stolen bases. But you look right, right to the column immediately next to 30 stolen bases, and you see 18 caught stealing. And you're like, why were you even running, man? It's all he had, I mean, really. <laughs> yeah, so what's that? that's like about 60, that's like 63% success rate. Abysmal. What's, What's the threshold whereby like stealing becomes actually profitable? Yeah, like, the, the break even point is about 70%. So he was costing the team runs on yeah. the base pass, essentially. Increasingly, Sabermetrics says you you want like close to 80%, to be honest, right. which is why people don't run anymore. Tough look for our guy. Um, so verdict, this legend is overrated. As a basketball player, no, <laughs> hardly. <laughs> Anyway, I, I want to say uh, thank you guys for, for coming on. This was a real pleasure. I'll ask just one last question because all of us are kind of in the same boat with uh, with the sports that we cover respectively. What is your optimism level right now about Major League Baseball coming back and playing some form of a 2020 season? Throughout the past two months, I, I've been pretty pessimistic, but now it seems like Major League Baseball is increasingly unfazed about the risk level. And as the, as the summer uh, draws nearer, they seem increasingly resolved to, to get their money 
uh, even if it endangers their players and even if uh, you know the circumstances are less than ideal and it's a logistical nightmare. So more and more, I am convinced there will be baseball, even though you know the easing of social distancing protocols in the majority of states uh, is probably going to exacerbate the situation and make it even riskier to play baseball in July than it would have been in April. But I don't think that the powers that be necessarily care about that anymore. And their uh, Major League Baseball's increasing sort of cavalier attitude about uh, the risks involved, I think it ultimately reflects that of uh, policymakers and uh, you know elected officials in the United States who think that prioritizing the economy and getting the economy back on track is more important than ensuring that everybody stays safe. So ultimately, that was a long-winded way of saying I am more confident now that there will be baseball played in 2020 than I was weeks ago. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat with basketball where like, I don't particularly think it's a good idea for it to come back. But I've, I've started to think that it's more likely that it will just because there seems to be like a really spirited push on behalf of the league and its players to, to get the league back up and running again. So yeah, I was gonna just add, and I, I know this is something I mentioned on, on Pound the Rock, I think the first couple episodes after the shutdown, but I really like, I get why it seems you know, like selfish of them to do it and, and kind of tone deaf. But I also don't think, cause I see a lot of people like making fun of, or not even making fun of, but like straight up just ripping the fact that these leagues are even trying, you know, and looking at it as like just cancer season, like what are we doing? And I, I understand why people think that way, but at the same time, you know, as I said before, like you also can't fault, first of all, the players for wanting to play, right? Like a guy like LeBron James, who is losing maybe one of his last best chances to win. It's like, you can't fault that guy for wanting to play. You can't fault the NBA or the MLB as a league for at the very least exploring every possible way that they can do this safely. And like, I'm not at all advocating that they should put people at risk if it's like clear that they shouldn't. But I don't think it's worth making fun of the fact that they're willing to leave no stone unturned in at least exploring whether it is feasible because, you know, as much as we don't want to admit that money is everything in pro sports, like there are billions of dollars at stake. And while obviously human lives are way more important than that, like we can't be naive enough to, to not understand why they would at least explore every single possible way they can get this done. No, they should explore. And, and so long as they do it, responsibly and ethically that's totally cool i'm just not confident that these corporations with such a massive financial interest are going to do that because you know gestures vaguely at the history of capitalism (laughs) yeah no exactly I'm, i'm with you there for sure like i i i still highly doubt any league can actually pull it off safely but hopefully they can for all of our things too yeah in the meantime, I'm happy to just keep uh, shooting the shit about whatever we can uh, possibly congregate to talk about. And I hope we'll get a chance to do something like this again. It's a pleasure talking to you guys. And to our listeners, if you are not subscribed or listening to Expand the Zone, if you have any tangential interest in baseball whatsoever, I would rectify that immediately. You guys do an unbelievable job. Uh, so thank you for gracing us with your presence. Thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Pleasure was all ours. I wish Ken Griffey had tried to play basketball. That's the one. I, was just, I wish he had I tried to play about, hockey. I was just about to invite you on the Pat Connaughton episode of, of Expand the Zone, actually. Oh, yeah. He was like an ace pitcher, right? I, th- I believe so. Yeah. yeah. Mark, Mark, we could talk about Mark Hendrickson on a future episode. 
He guarded MJ at one point. I think Scott Burrell, who was like a you know, notorious punching bag for Michael Jordan, he was uh, <laughs> features prominently in the last dance, was a Toronto Blue Jays prospect at one point in time. Danny Ainge. Yeah. The the two sport athlete is uh it really hit it hit its like pinnacle in the nineties. So true to form, we're all uh we're all venturing into other sports. You guys talking a bit of basketball, we're talking a bit of baseball. <laughs> and again, I hope we get to do it again sometime. So talk to you guys soon. Thanks, See you, boys. Adios. Oh, yeah.